Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the first of our lectures in this academic year. The theme this year that we're going to be focusing on mostly is actually about war and peace, and we're going to use the attention that's um, coming to the centenary of the First World War to think about some of those questions. Hopefully you've got a brochure in front of you about some of the other events that are coming up. But we're also hosting a special lecture each term um, in the lead-up to and in the aftermath of the British general election this year. And the first of those is the lecture we're holding tonight. Um, tonight's speaker is, uh, as you know, Owen Jones. And Owen, I think it's safe to say, has become a powerful voice in British public debate. Um, He's had a long-standing commitment to the trade union movement, and one manifestation of that is his ongoing involvement in uh, CLASS, a new think tank, the Centre for the Study of uh, Centre for Labour and Social Studies, uh, which has been set up by some trade unions to give um, some intellectual voice to the trade union movement. He's also got regular writings in many outlets in the media, most notably in The Guardian. And I think if you've read those writings, you'll see that he's a fresh and distinctive voice and he commands a good deal of attention for that reason. And lastly, he's an author. He's the author, as many of you will know, of Chavs, a book about the demonisation of the working class. And he's now an author of a second major book, The Establishment, and that's the focus of what he's going to talk about today. So just to let you know how we're going to proceed, um, Owen's going to talk for about 35 minutes or so, uh, then we're going to take, have plenty of time for questions and discussion, and then after all of that, if you're interested, you'll have noticed the books are out there on the, on the, in the vestibule, and we'll be sitting up here for a session of signing books, um, if that's what you would like to do. So will you join me in welcoming our first speaker this year, Owen Jones. Thank you very much uh, for the very kind introduction, and it's great to see so many of you here. I'm going to dry off in front of you, that's okay, because I'm basically drenched to my skin, which is awkward. Uh, it's quite warm in here, so that's, that's a good start. It's great to be at the LSE, so university with great traditions, uh, a great radical tradition of a tradition of people organising and confronting power. Maybe we could just have an impromptu student occupation tonight, if you like, or, uh, or march on Westminster or something. Um, but also, was also partly the, heart, uh, the heartland of neoliberal economics as well. So it has a two-sided history, but I'm going to try and emphasise the first half. That's what I want to bring out in people tonight. I don't want you all turning into rampant Milton Friedman clones. Um, it's great to do this lecture because Ralph Miliband is someone who is an inspirational figure on the left. One of the great intellectual powerhouses of the post-war left. Now, what Ralph Miliband did, and Ralph Miliband fled the, the, the horror, the tyranny of Nazism, and he came to these shores as a committed socialist and a committed opponent of Nazi barbarism. And he, as many of you will know, he fought against the Nazis, very bravely and courageously so, which I think is why it's worth noting that the very paper which described him 
as the man who hated Britain was, of course, a paper owned by a man who was cavorting with Adolf Hitler at a time when Ralph Miliband was confronting and taking on Nazism. And that was a paper, I'm sure we'll discuss the Daily Mail maybe a little bit, a paper which ironically hates everything about modern Britain. Women, public sector workers, Muslims, the NHS, the BBC, and so on. And I suppose what's interesting about it, and what we'll talk about maybe a little bit, is how often opponents of the status quo, people like Ralph Miliband in their day, are construed as the enemy within, a a fifth column, the conflation of the ruling establishment of the time with the nation as a whole, as though wanting to confront injustice makes you somehow the enemy of the people or the enemy of the nation itself. And that's often how dissidents have been construed throughout history. But it's great to see the real legacy of Ralph Miliband being kept alive by the LSE. And if anything comes out of the way the Daily Mail attacked him, it's for more people to engage with his fantastic uh, and, and, and I think still extremely relevant work which he wrote in those decades after World War II. Now, what I'm going to talk about tonight is the establishment, but I've got a slight caveat first. I never wanted to be a writer. Whoops. And the point of being a writer, for me, is to try and get discussions going like this. To try and get people to discuss the injustices that I think confront all of us in this country and right across the world. To encourage discussions about how we organise. And I think that's for me, a key point. Not that fussed if you read my book or not, and I'll probably get glowered at by uh, my boss at Penguin. Uh, but for me, you could just see it as a kind of slightly wordy call to arms. And that's what I'm interested in talking about tonight as well. To try and see not just about discussing injustice, discussing the status quo as some sort of abstraction, but as something that if you and I hope you do in the audience, and certainly I hope by the end of our discussion tonight you do, you believe that this status quo is as unjust as it is unsustainable, then we'll all do something together to organise and confront this status quo and build a different sort of society. And if I had any motives, any key motives for writing this book, it was this. Ever since this crisis began in this country, popular anger has been cynically and ruthlessly redirected away from those at the top of society, those with power, to people's neighbours down the streets instead. Unemployed people, benefit claimants, the public sector worker, immigrants. The behaviour of those below is ruthlessly scrutinised, criticised and attacked. We have Benefit Street, we don't have Tax Dodger Street, And we don't have Banker Street either. Now, we're left believing that the many problems affecting our nation is due to the behaviour of those down the road, often the powerless, rather than the powerful. And partly what this is, is the politics of envy. Now, it's funny because people like me are sometimes, if I suggest that those at the top of society are doing exceptionally well while so many people are struggling, that they should maybe contribute a bit more. That is often accused of being the politics of envy. I would argue it is those at the top of society, the establishment that reigns over us, 
which constantly pushes the politics of envy, what they try to do is get struggling people to envy each other rather than be angry with those with power. They say to low-paid workers whose wages are being cut by their boss, whose in-work benefits are being cut by this government, don't be angry with your boss. Don't be angry with the government. Envy instead the unemployed person down the road living in luxury in a mansion made out of widescreen television sets. Or they say to private sector workers where pensions have been decimated, one of the great scandals of our time, don't be angry with your boss. Envy the nurse or the teacher whose pension is still intact. And they say to people who can't get an affordable home because our governments won't build council housing, all to the people who can't get a secure job because those secure jobs have been stripped out of our economy by acts of economic vandalism. Don't be angry with those above. Envy instead the immigrant getting the home or the job that should rightfully be yours. The, the idea is to, to be angry at the fact, not at the fact you're being mugged. It's the fact your less deserving neighbour isn't being mugged quite as enough as you have been mugged. And what that does is deflect attention away from those at the top of society, those who dominate and those who rule, those who actually shape the society all around us. And that's why this book and my message tonight, I have an unashamed message, which is that those with power must be scrutinised and held responsible for the state of this country. And that what should be a statement of the obvious, should in any way be controversial, is itself revealing, in my view, of where power is concentrated and who rules. Now, what I want to do is I want to start with a man called Steve Varley. If the modern British establishment wanted a public ambassador, Steve Varley would be a pretty good bet. He's the relatively youthful, smooth chairman of Ernst & Young, one of the big four accountancy firms. It boasts a $24 billion annual turnover. The thing about Steve Varley is it's a striking break from the kind of stuffy public school stereotype of the British boardroom. A northern lilt probably stronger than what remains of my own still lingers in his voice. He was born in Harrogate in Yorkshire. Harrogate's quite posh, isn't it, he jokes to me. He grew up in the end in a terraced house in Bury, 200 yards away from Gig Lane, Bury Football Club's football stadium. He's kind of smiley, down to earth. He's got that charm, the uh, cliched bloke you'd have a pint with down the pub, if you like. When he goes home, he says, he's with his mates, and it's just like it was when they were growing up. They kick a football about. By the end of it, he's getting the first round in. But it's just like it was when they were kids, he says. And when he comes to meet me in the grand headquarters of Ernst & Young, which has these stunning views over the panoramic uh, skyline of this great capital, he, he turns up late, and the reason he turns up late is because the night before, he was at the LGB campaigning charity Stonewall. Boy George was on the decks, he tells me. He's very proud of the fact Ernst & Young is the LGB employer of the year. He's a member, too, of the Social Business Trust. He's really proud of this. What, one of his projects that he's really proud of is called Bike Works, and it takes ex-prison offenders, and it trains them to be bike mechanics. Another project he's really proud of is uh, takes those he describes as underprivileged women and helps them get into work. They're really inspiring women, he says. So I get a lot from that. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Steve Varley is a genuinely 
well-intentioned man. He thinks he's helping people. Few members of the establishment are what I would describe as psychopaths. Now, I don't know if anyone's read... I don't know if anyone's read uh, The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. Now, in that, he points out that about 1% of the population are psychopaths. How many people do we have here today? Sorry. No. But... He makes the point in that, that in, in the boardroom among CEOs, it's four times higher. But that's still 96% of CEOs who aren't Hannibal Lecter's in the making, which is very reassuring. Most people rationalise what they do as in some way being useful for the common good, at least not damaging the interests of other people around them. But this is what Ernst & Young did. They helped facilitate the mass, systematic, industrial... Uh, tax avoidance uh, on part of those at the top, rich individuals, corporate interests, a practice which is worth an estimated £25 billion every single year. £25 billion at a time of the biggest public sector cuts in generations. He talks passionately of helping those he describes as underprivileged women. In this country, in Britain, in 2014... Hostels helping women flee domestic violence are turning away, on average, 230 women every single day. In a uh, country in which one to two women are killed by a current or former partner every single week, where 1.2 million women a year face domestic violence. These are hostels, partly not properly funded, they're being shut down, and that's all justified on the basis there simply isn't enough money to sustain them. There's also various public services being cut, cuts to benefits, the bedroom tax, one of the cruelest policies a government, I would argue, has inflicted on its own people in this country uh, since World War II, a policy which disproportionately affects poor disabled people, forcing them to cough up money they don't have or to downsize to smaller properties that don't exist, all justified on the basis there isn't enough money to go around. Now, Steve Arley, a decent, thoroughly decent, charming bloke, his philosophy reminds me of the ethos of the Victorian era, where we didn't have public services or a welfare state provided on the basis of progressive taxation. Instead, you relied on a patchwork of charitable provision provided, if you were lucky, by a few generous millionaires out of the, if you like, goodness of their own hearts, their conscience, uh, if you like, pushing them to help those less fortunate than themselves. That was a system swept away most dramatically by the post-war Labour government of Clement Attlee, who once said that charity is a grey and loveless thing. If a rich man wants to help the poor, then he should pay his taxes gladly, not dole out money at a whim. Now, this is the thing with Ernst & Young. I'm going to leap to Steve Varley's defence again, because I like Steve Varley. thing is, Steve Varley would have a very quick, and he does, he has a very quick comeback. Look, if you're angry about tax avoidance, that's something you're passionate about. Don't take it up with us. We just follow the law. Take it up with the government. They're the ones who draw up the legislation. One slight problem. Because Ernst & Young and the other big four public accountancy firms help draw up the tax laws in the first place. So as the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee said last year, individuals from the big four accountancy firms 
advise governments, go back to their firms and advise their clients on how they can use those laws to reduce the amount of tax that they pay. So take KPMG. It's one of the other big four accountancy firms. They second staff to the Treasury to focus on developing what are called controlled foreign company and patent box rule. I won't go into detail because it is actually pretty dull. But after offering advice, KPMG produced brochures on these rules, boasting of their role in advising government. The brochure Patent Box, What's in it for you? Uh, which was published by KPMG, suggests the legislation is a business opportunity to reduce UK tax uh, and uh, that, that can be used as a defendable expense allocation. Large accountancy firms, as the Public Accounts Committee says, have a good understanding of how HMRC applies tax law, which they can use to advise clients on which arrangements HMRC are likely to challenge. They have a detailed knowledge of UK tax law, says the report. They are able to identify loopholes in new legislation quickly. Now, the big four accountancy firms, their tentacles are everywhere. They're all over the top of political power in this country. Each year, PricewaterhouseCooper, one of the other big four accountancy firms, they offer free advice worth over a quarter of a million pounds to senior Labour front benches, including the shadow chancellor, Ed Balls. Now, the former supremo of Her Majesty's Revenues and Customs, so the key tax official in this country, Dave Hartner, he was often characterised by campaigners against tax avoidance as a stooge for tax-dodging businesses, to whom he granted numerous sweetheart deals. Now, in 2001, he published what was a seminal document for HMRC, which became popularly known as the Hartnett Review. Now, as a former senior tax official, Richard Brooks put it to me, the report said that most large companies don't avoid tax. And as he put it to me, that was false, and they knew it was false. I did protest about it internally. I showed them the evidence from the revenue's own database. It showed it wasn't true. More than half of the companies reviewed had an avoidance scheme. Now, when Richard Brooks uh, protested internally about this, he was dismissed as naive. Note often a term used to stigmatise anyone who opposes the status quo. Now, in 2012, to emphasise Dave Hartnett's soft touch with big business, campaigners against tax avoidance stormed his black-tie extravagant do at Oxford, presenting him with mock awards for services in front of all his fellow clients and colleagues to the likes of Vodafone and Goldman Sachs until they were ejected by a Hartnett associate who was filmed yelling, this is an unlawful conspiracy to trespass. You will depart immediately before we set the dogs on you. It's all on YouTube if you're interested. But their trespass would be vindicated. Because who did Dave Hartnett end up working for when he retired? But of course, one of the big four accountancy firms, Deloitte. Now Hartnett is a prominent example of what you could describe as a revolving door which characterises much of the modern establishment. According to those well-known lefties, the Financial Times, in the last decade or so, 18 ex-ministers and former civil servants ended up with a big four accountancy firm. Two former New Labour Home Secretaries, a former Director General at HMRC, a former head of the Number 10 Policy Unit, a former advisor to the Deputy Prime Minister, and so on and so forth. As the FT put it, here was a sign of the symbiotic relationship 
between government and the companies at the centre of recent tax avoidance rows. But the thing is, it goes way beyond secondments and revolving doors. HMRC would work closely with the big four accountancy firms on a day-to-day basis. According to one Freedom of Information request, Dave Hartnett met Deloitte's senior British partner David Krushchank 48 times between 2007 and 2011. As Richard Brooks, that former senior tax official, put it to me, uh, this was something big companies knew about, that if you wanted a good deal, go to Khrushchev, he'd sit down with Hartnett and do a deal. Now, what I want to do is come back to the point about the law, which I brought up earlier. Because what campaigners against tax avoidance often do, including myself, is to make a comparison between benefit fraud and tax avoidance. Now, there's a very obvious reason for doing that. Benefit fraud is worth an estimated £1.2 billion a year, less than 1% of social security spending each year, which we focus on, I would argue, disproportionately, whilst tax avoidance, as I say, is worth £25 billion every single year. But there was a very easy comeback to that, and it goes like this. Hang on a minute. Benefit fraud is illegal. Tax avoidance is legal. And therein is the point. Because the law exists to crack down on the misdemeanours of the poor, but to facilitate or even encourage the far more socially destructive behaviour of those at the top of society. Benefit claimants are not being seconded to the Department for Social Security (laughs) to draw up Social Security law, least of all benefit fraudsters. Obviously, the fact you laugh shows just how ridiculous it is. But it is no less ridiculous than companies engaged and facilitating tax avoidance, drawing up our tax laws uh, to benefit their clients. Now, what this shows partly is something which could be summed up as one rule for those at the top and one rule for everybody else. And a classic or a striking example of this is the treatment of the banks. Now, when the financial sector plunged this country into economic calamity, they were not bailed out by free market dogma. They were bailed out by the state. Hundreds of billions of pounds of taxpayers' money. They became Britain's most lavished benefit claimant. But with a very striking difference, very few conditions attached to the huge state support that they received. So, with the banks, for example, they carried on paying more bonuses than all other EU countries put together, with this government taking the European Union to court uh, for trying to limit those bonuses, paying out more high salaries to those at the top of these banks than even their predecessors, not known for their restraints, could even have dreamt of. Not lending to small businesses, helping to choke off an economic recovery from a disaster which they caused. Huge state support, stage la- state largesse, but oh so few conditions attached to that state support. Contrast that to benefit claimants. Benefit claimants, including unemployed people thrown out of work because of the actions of those bailed out at the top of society. And I'll give you a striking example of this. In the last 18 months, over one million unemployed people have had their benefits sanctioned. Now, for those who don't know what that means, I'll quickly explain. A benefit sanction means your benefits are suspended for maybe two or three weeks or longer because you have failed to abide by the strict conditions attached to receiving support from the state. This was originally seen as a 
last resort, but has increasingly become a measure which is uh, resorted to for the most arbitrary and almost incredible reasons, often used to push people off benefits, to deter them from claiming benefits in the first place, or for them to to, to register as bogusly self-employed instead after they lose their jobs. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this. Give you an example. A 60-year-old man in Manchester, an army veteran, Stephen Taylor. Now, this 60-year-old army veteran, he was selling poppies for the Royal Legion. Selling poppies to help his maimed, his injured uh, former comrades. And he was desperately trying to look for work. It's hard at that age, at the age of 60. My dad lost his job in his 50s, and at that age it becomes harder and harder to find lasting work. And he tried to get a job, including at the supermarket he was selling poppies at. He had his benefits sanctioned for three weeks. And the reason he had his benefits sanctioned is the fact he was volunteering for the Royal Legion showed he wasn't trying hard enough to look for work. And you can see the difference. Huge state support, minimal conditions for those at the top of society, while state support for those at the bottom of society ever more conditional or simply stripped away altogether. Socialism for the rich. Capitalism, sink or swim, for those at the bottom instead. And that characterises so much of British society. So many examples of this socialism for the rich. Privatised railways subsidised by the state. Far more subsidies than they got in the days of nationalised British rail. Whether it be in-work benefits, subsidising the low pay of bosses who aren't paying their workers enough wages for them to be able to exist on. Housing benefit, lining the pockets of private landlords and again acting as a subsidy for low pay. Uh, Half of all public sector spending now going directly to private consultants and private contractors. Uh, Whether it be state spending on research and development and infrastructure that all big business relies on. And that puts into acute relief, uh, that shows, if you like, the fact many of these large businesses refuse to contribute to a state on which they are entirely dependent on. The idea, the ideology of our time, free markets, a total myth and hypocrisy in practice. Now, if I was going to describe this establishment, this establishment I've tried to explain briefly uh, with these examples, this is how I would describe it. It is made up, as it's always been, of powerful groups that need to protect their position in a democracy in which the entire adult population has the right to vote. You can see this establishment, if you like, is an attempt to manage democracy uh, on behalf of these groups to make sure it doesn't threaten their interests. You could see it as a firewall protecting them from the wider population. As the well-connected blogger and columnist Paul Staines put it approvingly to me, he's better known to some of you, I think, as Guido Fawkes, he said, we've had nearly a century of universal suffrage now, and what happens is capital finds ways to protect itself from, you know, the voters. Now, if you go back to the 19th century, as calls for universal suffrage, or suffrage certainly for all men, gathered strength, there were fears in privileged circles that if you extend the vote to working people, if you extend the vote to everybody, that would pose a mortal threat to the position of those at the top. That the lower rungs of society would use their newfound voice to take away power and wealth from those at the top and redistribute it throughout the electorate. 
So take the Conservative statesman Lord Salisbury, who would end up Prime Minister in the late 19th century. He said that if you give working class people the vote, it would tempt them to pass laws with respect to taxation and property, especially favourable to them, and therefore dangerous to all other classes. He added, in proportion as the property is small, the danger of misusing the franchise will be great. The poorer the person, the more dangerous it would be to give them the vote because they would use it to threaten the interests of those at the top. But in the end, the ruling elites of this country were transfixed by a much greater fear, which is if you resist the growing demands for all to have the vote, for democracy, then you would be simply swept away by violent social revolution. And by 1918, all men and some women had won the right to vote. But then again, the worries of these 19th century opponents of universal suffrage, they weren't without foundation. Because in the decades that followed World War II, with everybody now having the right to vote, you did get attempts, and successful attempts, to redistribute wealth and power from those at the top of society and to distribute them more equally across the population. You did get progressive taxation. You did get a welfare state, the NHS, constraints on private businesses, nationalisation, and all the rest of them. These fears were not without foundation. That was the consequence of democracy. But my argument is this. The wealth and power, because of democracy, that had been clawed away from those at the top, well, in the last generation or so, there's been a very determined effort to annex back that wealth and power, to concentrate it back amongst those at the top of society. Today's establishment is characterised by institutions and ideas that legitimise and protect the concentration of wealth and power in very few hands. A society in which the wealth of the top 1,000 people can double in the last five years during the most protracted economic crisis in generations, whilst at the same time, at the other end, one million people are driven to food banks in order to simply be able to exist in the sixth richest country on the face of the earth. The establishment protects and legitimises exactly that order. Now, the problem is this. The interests of those who dominate British society, they're often disparate. Indeed, often they conflict with each other. The establishment includes politicians who make laws, and I'll describe that briefly shortly, media barons who set the terms of debate, businesses and financiers who run the economy, and so on. But the establishment is where these interests and these worlds intersect, either consciously or unconsciously. It's not a conspiracy. You don't have these rich men sitting in a smoke-filled room, puffing cigars, coming up with ever more creative ideas to grind the faces of the poor into the dirt. It doesn't work like that. Instead... This establishment is bound together by a set of common economic interests and, crucially, a set of shared mentalities. A mentality in particular you could sum up with the advertising slogan of the cosmetics giant L'Oreal, because I'm worth it. Now, this mentality, this mentality has driven politicians to plunder their expenses, businesses to avoid tax, and city bankers to demand ever greater bonuses whilst plunging the world into economic disaster. Now, give politicians as an example. It used to be the case that politicians weren't paid at all. They only got any pay in 1911, and that was because the left and the trade union movement demanded they were paid because otherwise it was a rich man's club. 
But instead today, if you're a backbencher, you're in the top 3% by income. But what's happened is this. Politics has become increasingly professionalised. The idea of politics as a service, where you're the voice of your constituents, that has been dramatically eroded. And instead, the mentality of politicians is that they're like an upper middle class profession like any other. But then they look at the other upper middle class professions. They look at city bankers and lawyers and they think, hang on a minute, we're only in the top 3% by earners. This lot, they're in the top 0.001%. Why aren't we getting a slice of the action? But it wasn't politically impossible to vote to increase their salaries. So instead, they used expenses as a means to top up their wages to a level that they thought they deserved. And another example of how they, if you like, try and get some of the wealth and power which is booming in modern Britain. Of the top 50 publicly traded companies in this country, 42 of them, sorry, 46 even, 46 of the top 50 companies have an MP as a director or as a shareholder. That's 92% of the top 50 companies. The, the next Western country that even comes close is that well-known bastion of clean politics, Italy. Now, to be fair to Italy, to be fair to Italy, in their case, only 24% of the top 50 companies have a director or a shareholder who is a member of their parliament. It's 92% in this country. And that's also, what also adds into this is a, the revolving door I spoke about. I'll give you an example. Jeff Hoon, former Secretary of State for Defence. When he was Secretary of State for Defence, he gave a contract, all above board, but no competition, to Augusta Westland. Augusta Westland, a defence giant which specialises in selling helicopters, including to those well-known shining democracies like Saudi Arabia. Now, when he stood down, who did he end up working for? But Augusta Westland as one of their senior directors. I'll give you another example. Give you another example. Patricia Hewitt. Patricia Hewitt was Labour's Secretary of State for Health, the guardian of Labour's most treasured institution, the National Health Service. Who did she end up working for when she stood down? But as a director for the private healthcare firm, Bupa. Another example, Alan Milburn. Alan Milburn was a Secretary of State for Health. He used to be a Trotskyist back in the day. He ran a bookshop uh, called Days of Hope, which is more famously known at the time as Haze of Dope, for reasons I'm sure <laughs> most of you can guess. Now, when he stood down, who did he end up working for? But private equity firms up to their necks in private healthcare firms, including those now benefiting from the privatisation of our National Health Service. Now, what this does is it means that MPs and these interests, these corporate interests in the top, they identify with each other. They end up with shared economic interests and mentalities. Instead of being the servants of their constituents, their interests increasingly merge with those at the top. The ideas like privatisation or low taxes on the rich, they're not just abstractions, they're policies that you can expect to personally profit from as well. Now, those who don't subscribe to these mentalities, well, they're ostracised, demonised, completely ignored, humiliated, whatever. If you're young, you're naive. If you're old, you're a dinosaur. If you're too poor, you're envious. If you're too rich, you're a hypocrite. You literally can't win. And this is a means of ensuring the terms of debate are always kept in the interests of those at the top. And that's ensured by a media, of course, which is supposed to be a free media, uh, and it's a free media because it isn't run by the government, but instead it's dominated by a set of wealthy moguls who, of course, are part of a status quo 
whose interests it's very much in their own uh, to defend. No wonder then we have so much disproportionate focus on you know, benefit claimants with 50 kids running around manically uh, living in these vast mansions at your expense. Stories guaranteed to make your blood boil rather than focusing on the behaviour of those at the top of society instead. But this is my point, and this is where it's kind of partly over to you. It is my belief that this establishment, which dominates our society, which protects and legitimises this grotesquely unequal and unfair and unjust society, that this establishment needs to be challenged. It needs to be scrutinised. Because part of the problem is this. This establishment is far more triumphalist than those that came before it. It genuinely thinks it's vanquished its opponents. The way it can partly get away with annexing so much wealth and power, even during an economic crisis, is it doesn't feel that it's encountering enough resistance. There isn't countervailing pressure to hold it to account and preventing it taking wealth and power away from the rest of us. But I think that triumphalism is complacency. And the reason I think it's complacency is because of the proud traditions of this country. Traditions we don't talk about enough. And that's this. The way we get change isn't because of the goodwill and generosity of those above. It's because of the struggle and sacrifice of people from below. Women didn't get the vote and workers didn't get basic rights because someone got out of bed one day and thought, oh, do you know what, I think I'll give women the vote. People had to fight for them, often at great cost to themselves. And if we look throughout our history at that, if we look back to the earlier 19th century, the toll puddle martyrs who tried to set up an early trade union and were deported, transported to Australia as a punishment, forcing people to organise, to take to the streets in the first mass political demonstration in the history of this country, 800,000 people signing a petition demanding their return, which they got, whether it be the Chartists, the world's first working-class political movement, which fought for democracy and for suffrage for men, whether it be the early trade unionists who fought for the rights and dignity of working people, whether it be the suffragettes, demonised and reviled in their time as terrorists and anarchists, force-fed in prisons, reviled, hated, vindicated by history, those who fought racism and sexism and homophobia, battened in the streets, spat at uh, and so on, vindicated again by history, those who fought for the NHS, who fought for the welfare state, who fought for workers' rights, all in the teeth of determined opposition from those with power. Those are our traditions and it is my view that we stand on the shoulders of giants and that is a tradition we all need to rediscover. I don't believe it is just or sustainable to have a society in which as I say the wealth of the top 1,000 people can double while people in this prosperous thriving country have to choose between heating their home and feeding their children and I believe in generations to come that they will look back at such a society as unjust and grotesque. So it's up to us to not just, if you like, discuss these issues, not just to go home after what I hope will be an interesting and eye-opening discussion in which we'll share experiences and we'll all learn from each other, but we actually learn from the traditions of our ancestors. We have the same courage and determination and foresight that they showed and that we organise in the same way 
to confront our establishment and instead of having a society rigged in the interests of those at the top, to build a society run in the interests of those who keep society ticking day after day. So please, it's over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Owen. Uh, we've got a, a good time for discussion. I'm going to start by taking single questions, but if it becomes the case that we've got a lot of people, I think we'll take them in groups, if that's all right by you. Um, let me just start with um, a first person, the person in the middle here. Yes, you with the glass. Just, could you just... Everyone could say who they are and where they're from and wait for a microphone, please. Hello, Joseph Harmer. Um... In light of that call to arms at the end, I was just wondering on your opinion why um, anti-establishment left groups like um, the People's Assembly or Occupy or Left Unity or whatever, they haven't really managed to keep any uh, um, meaningful momentum and in my experience tend to dwindle quite quickly to the same sort of people sitting around in a church hall. Oh, blimey, brutal. Um... <laughs> That's a very good point. I mean, you know, I mean, m m myself, I've, I've been proudly part of the People's Assembly since it was set up. It was a year ago, uh, and it was set up as a coalition of people in the Labour Party, the Green Party, in No Party, in Trade Unions, the biggest democratic movement in the country, campaigners for tax justice, for elderly people, and so on. Uh, and we've had these huge meetings right across the country. But I'll be honest with you, those who believe in a different sort of society have just not got their act together. They've not presented a coherent alternative that resonates with people. Most people don't think in terms of left or right. They think in terms of issues to be addressed in a way that's convincing, coherent, that, that's spoken in a language, as I say, they understand, that resonates with their experiences. And what happened? I mean, Milton Friedman, a right-wing economist I alluded to, he, because back in the day, the neo, those I would describe as the neoliberals, the, you know, the ideas of privatisation, lower taxes on the rich and deregulation and so on, those ideas were seen as heretical. They were seen as discredited by history and the likes of Milton Friedman felt a bit depressed about it and they organised into think tanks and laid their intellectual foundations. But the point Milton Friedman made, which I agree with, is that when a crisis, uh, that to get change you need a crisis, but it depends on the ideas like around. And back in 2008, I think there was a misplaced schadenfreude on parts of the left. The idea was that, you know, neoliberalism's been discredited, the market has clearly failed, the state has had to bail out these private interests, the biggest nationalisations in human history undertook by uh, comrade George W. Bush in the United States. And yet, that hasn't panned out quite as expected. And the reason for that is because there was still a coherent set of ideas around, neoliberal ideas, and a crisis of the market was very cleverly turned into a crisis of public spending. Uh, the Conservatives backed Labour spending plans bound for bound until the end of 2008 and yet construed the whole crisis as due to Labour's chronic uh, pro pro profligate um, uh, spending. And there wasn't 
that movement in place which had laid the intellectual foundations and that's partly because the left and its traditional forms had been battered because of the rise of the new right the smashing of the trade unions who were often the backbone of the left and gave it relevance and uh, connection with workplaces and working uh, commu- working people's communities and, and so on um, the form of globalisation we've had which is seen to hem in even a modest social democratic government and also the collapse of Soviet totalitarianism which I hope everyone would abhor in this room, but nonetheless was spun by the free marketeers, by the neoliberals as being the end of history, the triumph not just of capitalism, but capitalism reading tooth and claw. And as a result, the left never regained, never regained its ideological self-confidence. It, it was rudderless, leaderless, without any set of ideas which it could present to people that, that resonated with them. And that's partly why instead you see the likes of UKIP, following uh, filling that vacuum i mean it's beyond parody partly isn't it anti-establishment insurgents led by that rare breed of politician a privately educated white man who worked as a city broker (laughs) funded by conservative donors and millionaires whose deputy chairman is neil hamilton a discredited former tory politician who was booted out uh, because of his uh, antics previously as a conservative minister whose latest recruits are two white privately educated tory mps one of whom worked in the city the other as asset Management. That is the anti-establishment insurgents of our time, whose policies are those well-known kind of, you know, break from the political consensus, tax cuts for the rich, privatisation, the curtailing of workers' rights. But their success is an indictment of those of us who want a coherent alternative, because they have fil- a vacuum has to be filled. I mean, you know, in a sense... You know, good luck to them. I mean, you know, so much disenchantment and disillusionment, it just took a bunch of enterprising charlatans to take advantage of it because there wasn't anybody else. But but that has to change. And that's partly my plea when I do talks like this. We have to get our act together. I mean, UKIP voters, look at the polls of UKIP voters. Do you know what they believe in? They're more likely to support nationalisation of energy than the rest of the population. It's 77% of UKIP voters. They support the renationalisation of rail. They want higher taxes on the rich. They want council housing built. And they want a living statutory wage. Not exactly uh, in harmony with their leaders. And that is itself, again, a damning indictment of what we, those of us who want an alternative. So we've got to get our act together, present a coherent alternative that appeals to, to people. And if we don't, it will be the right-wing Populists who want to direct our anger away from anyone but those responsible instead to the Polish fruit picker, the Lithuanian nurse and the Indian cleaner who last time I checked did not plunge this country into economic disaster. Okay, can I take three questions this time? I'm going to start with that uh, a woman with the ginger-coloured hair and then... Uh... <laughs> We've got some quite personal descriptions, I can tell. <laughs> Make them kind of, like, generous. Be nice about them. Thanks for that. Just, just a second. But not in a leery way. We're going to have this bloke here, and then there was someone up, up there. Um, you have the man with the newspaper, please. So one, two, three in a row. Yeah. Um, Sophie Hammond, KCL. Um, do you therefore reject the Labour Party as an agent of change? Where was Sophie? I didn't see Sophie. Hi. Oh, there you are. Hey, Sophie. I'm from Sheffield, too. Oh, well, whereabouts in Sheffield? A uh, little village in the Rother Valley. Oh, very nice. Okay. I was going to tell people where I was born, then there's just no interest to anyone. <laughs> okay, thanks. Cheers, Sophie. Oh, oh do we get the mic? Because they won't be able to hear, even though you've got a very good, eloquent voice. Yes, indeed. 
How, very similar to the previous question, how do you think things will improve if, as I personally hope, we'll get a Labour government uh, in May? Surely it can't be any worse than it is at the moment. <laughs> Don't tempt them, is all I'd say to that. What was your name, by the way? Uh, my name's Brian. Brian, cheers, Brian. And lastly, the gentleman at the back yep, of the um, hello, uh, Matt Hotus. Is this, is this on? Yeah. Um, I lived in Burngree for ten years, but I've got the accent. Where? Where's uh, that? Burngree, Sheffield. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, Rock Street. Lots of Sheffielders um, here. <laughs> uh, slightly longer. If, if I just may just channel Ralph Miliband for a second. Um, Ralph Miliband's two most famous books are Parliamentary Socialism, which is very critical, um, in, well, particularly the 1945 Labour government and what followed, um, and pointed out that, if you like, the establishment then was one that still actually left gross inequalities of wealth and power in place. And the second book, if I recall, is Class in Capitalist Society. Um, you're kind of rather soft-peddling the concept of class. The establishment, you say it doesn't sound like a conspiracy. It does sound like a, some kind of networked power block. And again, you're kind of avoiding the language of working class and working class struggle. Are you being too reasonable? Not something I'm normally accused of, I mean, honestly. <laughs> Uh, I was described uh, in the Times as a 30-year-old trot who really ought to know better, which could... <laughs> I'm happy to be my epitaph, but reasonable I'll deal with. Uh, what was your name, sorry? <coughs> Matt, cheers, Matt. Uh, well, great set of questions. Well, firstly, Sophie. Uh, well, partly Brian as well, but I'll start with Sophie. The, the, the point originally with the Labour Party, of course, was it was set up because you had two parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives, which represented the interests of the upper crust of society. And it was a controversial move to set up the Labour Party as the party of labour, of working people, by trade unions and associated socialist uh, organisations. And, you know, Keir Hardy was the first socialist MP elected, and he turned up to the House of Commons in the traditional working-class garb of the day. And he was stopped at the gates of the House of Commons by a police officer who said, are you here to work on the roof? And he said, no, I'm here to work on the floor. And, and there began a, a new generation of MPs who were there supposedly to represent the interests of working people. Now, in my view, the interest, you know, people in those days were more likely to work in factories, mines and steelworks. These days, more likely to work in call centres. As many working call centres as work down the mines at the peak of the mining industry. In supermarkets, retails, the second biggest employer and offices. Those people still need a political uh, voice. And that trade union link remains in some form, which gives at least uh, through that link a potential uh, for working people to have uh, a voice. The problem is, as you would have guessed, that new Labour uh, was one of the key pillars of this new establishment I spoke about, accepting the underlying tenets and principles uh, of what this establishment represents and is, and becoming intricately linked, often very intimately linked, uh, with other prominent members of that establishment as well. Now, for me, uh, you know, I suppose, yes, there's still that struggle that can be, for those who kind of have the stomach because of that trade union link, then there's pressure to be built and, and to build from below on those at the top. And the bedroom tax is a key example. When that was first introduced by this government, uh, there was a sense that you can't possibly win that debate because there's been too much demonisation of social security and benefit claimants. What happened is people took to the streets and they organised and they gave a platform to those affected by the bedroom tax and they not only changed public opinion, they forced the Labour leadership uh, to say that they would repeal the bedroom tax if they came to power. But the truth is, what the Labour leadership is offering 
is in no sense the coherent, inspiring alternative that is desperately needed at a time when the social order of this country is completely and utterly bankrupt. As I say, the wealth of 1,000 people doubling in five years, whilst other people can't even afford to eat themselves. What's coming out of the Labour leadership at the moment? A rise in the minimum wage to £8 by 2020, uh, which, after inflation, is a derisory increase. Cut to child benefits. Woo, that'll get you bring, get, marching to the ballot boxes. Uh, accepting the cuts in the first year of, of what George Osborne has implemented. And that shows, partly, there isn't enough pressure coming from below. There isn't enough pressure coming through through that link, which, rep, which, as I say, a link representing uh, millions of working people. Uh, so my view is, uh, you know, if this Labour government comes to power and introduces the sorts of policies you'd expect from this government, then look at what happened in Spain and Greece. In Spain, you've got now Podemos, which is a party, it means we can in English, and they came out of nowhere. They came out of about 11 months ago they were set up. They came off the back of the indignados. These were protesters who occupied the central square in Madrid. Uh, they're now at the moment, they got five MEPs in the European elections. They're level pegging in some polls with the Spanish equivalent of the Labour Party. In Greece, PASOK came to power, the, the Greek equivalent of the Labour Party, uh, and implemented austerity, which you'd expect right-wing governments to do, and they destroyed themselves completely, and they've been overtaken by Syriza, which is a radical party on the left. And my point is, you know, just because of the heritage of the Labour Party and that trade union link which still remains, it doesn't have an automatic right to rule and to govern and to represent working people. And if it does what you'd expect these sorts of governments to do and to attack the living standards of the people that party was set up to fight for, then it will destroy itself. And the issue is, if we, people haven't put an alternative based on hope together, then it may well be the right-wing populism of UKIP that will benefit and, and fill that vacuum. So for me at the moment my point is, yes, for those who want to work in the Labour Party, keep fighting, build coalitions, link up through things like the People's Assembly with those in the Green Party or other parties or no party uh, whatsoever. But at the moment, the Labour leadership is, is failing in its mission for what that party was set up to do, and that is leading partly to the rise of UKIP, and that is absolutely unforgivable. Haywood, up north, that is a working-class Labour seat. And UKIP was 600 votes within taking that seat. It's intolerable. We can't end up with what could end up being Labour seats going to the right-wing populism of UKIP. That has to be stopped. So for me, the traditional point is with uh, Labourism, I suppose, partly is the fear that if you speak out and you dissent from what the Labour leadership does, you'll let in a Tory government. We've got an even bigger threat now, would you believe? I mean, that's where we've ended up. We've ended up now with the possibility of an insurgent right-wing populist movement which will turn neighbour against neighbour and go further than even the Tories would get and maybe even end up in coalition with the Conservatives if we're not careful. So either the Labour Party is forced to get its act together by people organising from below or it will destroy itself. And if it destroys itself, we can't allow right-wing populists to benefit. We have to look at the examples of Spain and Greece instead. Um, that point... Brian, you made, how will things, will things improve under the next, next Labour government? Well, for the reasons I described, they have to, clearly, because if they don't, if they don't, we know what happens. They will destroy their own base, 
They won't win over Tories by incrementing austerity, but they will alienate their own people. As Nye Bevan said, if you stand in the middle of the road, you hit, get hit by traffic in both directions. They'll be hit by a lot of traffic, I would imagine, and that will destroy them. So there is, I think, an existential question that lies over the Labour Party at the moment. So I think for those who do want a radical alternative, put pressure on them. Even if you don't believe the Labour Party can be changed, build pressure from below to offer an alternative like a living wage instead of forcing people to work for their poverty, like public ownership of our utilities instead of leaving them in the hands of private profiteers, like uh, using the bailed out banks to turn them into public investment banks to rebuild our shattered economy, for example, like proper tax justice including forcing those at the top to pay their taxes. We've got to fight from below. That's the, that's the lesson from our history. These things can only be won by people organising from below and showing determination, resolve and courage. So put pressure on them. And the, the, the other point is, it does help if you have a Labour government, because under this government, if you have a Tory government, a lot of the time people go, there's no point protesting or organising because they'll, they'll never change their mind. They'll never, they'll never give in. But under a Labour government, that changes. People think if we put enough pressure on them, we might be able to force them. After all, they're not supposed to be empowered to attack us. They're not supposed to implement these cuts on the scale that they might end up doing. So I think that will help movements that want to change things. So it will be better in that sense. It will open up space for, for new political possibilities and people organising to challenge the establishment. Um, the point about uh, me being a bloody sellout, honestly. Uh, no, that's not what you were saying. I'm uh, Matt, so I'm misconstruing your argument completely. Um, firstly, the post-war consensus. You know, I'm not arguing for a return to that post-war consensus. And one of the criticisms often levelled at what you had. For example, take nationalisation. Nationalisation was developed by Herbert Morrison, who was Peter Mandelson's granddad, and it was a very undemocratic, top-down form of nationalisation. It didn't have democratic control by workers or the people who used those services and their industries, and it didn't, as a result, have much sense of people having a stake in what those services and those industries did. And instead, I'd argue, if we took, for example, the railways back under public ownership, then it should be under the democratic control of workers and uh, service users to have democratic involvement instead of being run by a bunch of bureaucrats. So that's an example of how undemocratic that post-war consensus was. And of course, again, it was a society in which wealth and power was concentrated in the hands of those at the top. The difference was you did have some constraints and you did have some countervailing pressure coming from below. That's what's missing now. You have total ideological supremacy almost by those at the top, even though this huge disillusionment, as I say, even UKIP voters deviate from this consensus in terms of what it represents. Uh, but ideologically, they feel so confident, and also you don't have these strong trade unions to put pressure in and then get a bigger slice of the pie for workers, and you have a lack of those uh, other institutions and, and pressure from below. That's what's missing. So, I mean, the point you make about working-class struggle is, well, I mean, that's the history I was talking about before. That's how we get change. Working-class people, working people broadly defined, put it forcing change... Uh, whether those at the top like it or not. I mean, Frederick Douglass, a 19th century African-American statesman, said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. And that is a philosophy that should inspire all those who oppose the status quo, that only by having an alternative which inspires
as people and by building pressure from below can you get change so I'm not soft peddling my point is we have to fight we have to organize we have to be determined and show the same determination uh, as our ancestors and that is struggle I mean it's not a walkover it's not called a walkover it's hard it's a struggle and it involves sacrifice uh, and it involves people you know taking risks and fighting back but we've got to give people confidence and just lastly on that you know it'd be very easy for me to make an argument with far more militant language but at a time like this I think I would alienate more than I persuade I think it's important to start where people are we live in an age as I say of real profound triumphalism of those with power they think they've defeated their opponents and what I'm trying to do is to find ways of communicating ideas which oppose the status quo but in a language that doesn't just resonate with people on the left what remains often of those on the left and, 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 and the existing kind of ideological opponents of this establishment if that's all people like that me do we're not going to win anyone over we have to start where people are and if we do that and win people over then we can start shifting in a more radical direction so it's not a cop-out i'm just trying to accept where we are at the moment and hopefully push in a different direction okay let's take another three questions can we start with the lady in the third row over here and then i want to take someone up the top um this gentleman with the glasses in the second row and uh, the gentleman in the red sweater, third, please. So first of all, this yes. lady. Hello, my name is Bernadette Bonatti. Bre- was that Brenda? No, Bernadette. Bernadette, sorry. As in the saint. <laughs> and um, <laughs> not quite. You're not St. Bernadette, though. No, not, not tonight. <laughs> um, um, fantastic talk. So delighted that I came, and thank you so much for that insight. For coming. I'm just thinking, do we need a Beppo Grillo? Do we need? A Beppo Grillo? Mm-hmm. The... Beppo Grillo, the attack. Oh, Beppo Grillo, sorry. No, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not Beppo himself, but I'm thinking about what happened from the grassroots and what you're saying. I agree entirely that if we get some sort of militant speak, it's not going to happen. And obviously, you know, we've gone down the populist route. And I do believe that the UK, very sadly, is so conservative that it's going to take so many years to get someone like you in um, on the floor in the House of Parliament. So we've got a long way to go. Yeah, it came out wrong. Um, That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the roof. Maybe the roof. (laughs) No, seriously, though, I'm just thinking, do we need the the type of figure like a Beppo Grillo? Have we got to that stage where we've got no alternative, we have to do something grassroots, but we don't want it to be as ridiculous as what what he's actually doing there? Very good point. Thank you. Okay. And this gentleman in the second row. Hello, um, my name's Zuna. Um, my question, I think, sort of touches on an ideological chord. But you, I think you mentioned yourself that various elements of the establishment, as you perceive them, are quite disparate. Okay, You've got the media and you've got MPs, and their interests sort of converge economically. Now, now that, to me, sort of suggests that the establishment, to an extent, is an economic product. It's, it's a product of the, you know, the economic system in which we live. And that also, to me, suggests that there is something on a deeper psychological level that applies not only to the people at the top, but also to the people at the bottom. You've, got two, you've basically got two economic convergences. Um, and, and if that's the case, then you're going to have an establishment developing in, in any society, okay, past, present, or in the future. Now, 
how, how do you go about addressing that without either resorting to collectivism, which would probably go against the grain of who we are as humans, or completely re-engineering your economic system? Um, and how could you actually translate that into practical terms? So, there you are. That's, that's okay. Um, the questions are getting extensive. Um, and this gentleman here, please. Yes, my name is Francis Durham. Um, in... Can I first of all say I agree 100% with all that you have said. However, in suggesting that uh, people um, need to rise up and attack the establishment, there is a similarity there with Marx, hoping that people will rise up and create a revolution. They did not rise up. And that's the real problem we have these days. I look around at a lot of these students here, and I think, well, they get their degree from the LSE and they'll be off. And I bet a fair number will go into the institutions of the establishment. You can get lynched if you're not careful. About. There's a lot of them here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I missed it. Careful. Um, you're looking quite hostile in this direction. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm prepared to guarantee that almost. Um, and, and that's the real problem, you know, in, 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 in having a real attack on the establishment. There just isn't the will to do it. And that, that, that is a real problem. OK, great questions again. Well, firstly, Bernadette on uh, Beppo Grillo. Well, uh, for those who don't know, I'm sure lots of you do, he's uh, an Italian comedian who set up the Five Star Movement uh, in Italy as a protest movement, which ended up with about 20% of the vote and almost the balance of power. Um, I think partly, again, it, it partly feeds back to what I said before about the failure of those who believe in social justice and to transform society in the interests of working people, the failure for them to get their act together, that even some slightly silly comedian can, can create something and there's so much disaffection, people will rally to them. And that, that shows the huge disaffection that exists with elite and the failure of people of my persuasion uh, to tap into that in a, in a convincing and coherent way. Because Beppo Grillo wasn't offering any genuine alternative to the status quo at all. I know he set up, his party is now aligned in the same parliamentary group in, in the European Parliament with UKIP, uh, which just shows uh, how the fact he isn't offering any radical alternative uh, whatsoever. There was a kind of lots of slightly random different policies and in any case because people after electing so many of them realised it wasn't obviously the, uh, going to transform their lives in any beneficial way their support immediately plummeted. It was just a straight up yours, wasn't it, in the system. People stuck their fingers up in quite a dramatic fashion, and that's what Beppo Grillo uh, represented. And the other point is, is it's not as well grand leaders and iconic figures like that who can change things. I think partly there's this sense of let's defer to a charismatic figure who'll sort all our problems out, and that's not how we get change. We've always got to be aware of that. It's people organising from below, not being manipulated, if you like, by megalomania who will use the frustrations and angers of, uh, anger of people in quite cynical ways. I think what it does show, though, is if there's anything to come from that, I think it partly shows ways of organising which 
bypass the mainstream media. So the use of social media, for example, you know, I spoke how our media, we don't have a free media, we have a media dominated by a very small group of rich moguls who have a vested interest in the status quo. Well, social media can, can be used to organise people. And UK and Cut, for example, you know, I opened talking about tax avoidance. I bet I wouldn't have done that if UK and Cut hadn't come along, occupied shops and businesses engaged in tax avoidance, and they forced that issue on the agenda, but they used social media to do that because they knew they couldn't rely on the mainstream media. So let's use social media far more and organise in those creative ways and maybe be quite, quite being colourful about it. He's a colourful figure, Beppo Grillo, isn't he? Uh, if, if nothing else. Uh, but, but that, for me, is a sign of failure. Let's learn from the techniques they used, but let's build a genuine grassroots movement that challenges wealth and power instead of allowing right-wing populists or other reactionary populists and demagogues to fill the vacuum because they will fill a vacuum. A vacuum has to be filled and they will fill it. Um, that point about, well partly um, the point you're making, because you know as I said, disparate interests and so on and uh, you're talking about the fact people, not just at the top, buy into this and its ideas. Everybody does to a degree. Well, I suppose what I would say is, it's partly resignation rather than people buying into it. There's a difference. I mean, you know, as I say the polls show very clearly that in terms of what I would regard as establishment dogma on privatisation tax cuts for the rich and, and so on. That's not actually shared by the broad majority of the population. Those are quite establishment beliefs. You know, there was YouGov did a poll on, would you support a tax of 75% for those earning a million pounds or more? 42% of Conservative voters back that policy. <laughs> so that just showed the divergence that exists. The difference is this. The way injustice and any status quo often maintains itself, but particularly this one, because it's so adamant about there is no alternative that's the only, this is the only way we can run society. Injustice becomes a bit like the weather. You can complain about it raining, as I did when I came in, but there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way the world is. You grit your teeth, you take the blows, there's no other alternative. You might believe in a passive sense in a different sort of society, but it's impractical, and in any case, the whole world will come caving in if you even try and do that. And that is very much emphasised by this establishment in particular. Raise taxes on the rich, the whole economy will come crashing down uh, behind them. Those sorts of ideas. So it's very clever how, if you like, that resignation is perpetuated. And Tony Benn, who died um, a few months ago, he always said the way you get change is the burning flame of anger at injustice and the burning flame of hope at a better world. Well, there's lots of anger out there and there's lots of fear, but there is not very much hope, and that breeds mass resignation. So I think partly, yes, you know, it, you get consent by people being resigned rather than being passionate neoliberals. It's not like people are wandering around waving copies of Hayek and Milton Friedman. They're just resigned to it. Whilst those at the top, they do genuinely believe in it. And, I, you know, I call UKIP charlatans, but a lot of the people I looked at, these think tanks who have take reform, reform advocates the privatisation of public services. They're funded by private healthcare firms. They did a, they did a report on privatising prisons, which was uh, funded by Securicorps, who run private prisons. Uh, but that doesn't mean reform don't believe in it. They do. They passionately believe in it. All these right-wing think tanks and these neoliberals at the top, of course they believe in them. They're not just hired hands who are just writing, you know, churning out beliefs they, you know, because they're made to order. These are beliefs which happen to coincide with the interests of those at the top. So that's why they bought that's why you get this alliance. It's not an alliance, uh, you know, which is, these aren't bought hired hands. So I think that, for me, is, 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 uh, 
if you like, shows how this order is maintained. Um, and the only way we'll challenge it is by offering a coherent alternative that resonates. I don't believe in human nature, by the way. I think humans are infinitely malleable. I think the 20th century shows were capable of the most heinous atrocities imaginable. And the 20th century, I think, was a shock for many people who believed we were becoming ever more civilised because it showed what we were capable of. But we're also capable of the most immense good and altruism. There's no definite direction for what humans can do. And it depends partly on what we do, how we organise and the movements we build. And if we can do that, we can change people. And Thatcher always said from the very beginning she wanted to change people's hearts and souls. And Thatcherism did partly do that. But the fact that it managed to do that shows it can be changed in a different direction. We're not innately greedy or selfish, I don't believe. We're social animals. We depend on each other. And we can build a society more based on cooperation rather than one which sustains the interests of those at the top. And finally, Francis, the point about creating a revolution. Well, I'm not, you know, calling for kind of like armed insurrection and, you know, kind of guillotines in the streets. And I give people ideas probably by even saying that. But that's not, you know, I know that's not what you're saying necessarily at all. I'm calling for a radical break from this order. I want a society run in the interests of working people. That's run in the interests of meeting people's needs and aspirations rather than a society whose central organising principle is making profit for a small elite and hoping that some of that will shower down on the rest of us. So that's the society I believe in, about extending democracy to every sphere of life, not just in you know, going out every five years to vote, but in the economy and the workplace, giving people democratic power so that's the sort of society uh, I want to build and yeah I mean look you've always got people I mean you know there's a tradition I guess of the student radical who ends up kind of you know some multi-millionaire investment banker doesn't always end up like that you've always got people of conviction and belief who don't happen to go out and sell out despite all the huge pressure despite there is no alternative yelled at us you know it's this idea look you know you want a family you want to settle down you want the easy life and it's hard if you're swimming against the strong tide it's tiring it's exhausting you've constantly got the media and all these voices shouting at you grow up you know <laughs> partly in my case because I look like a 12 year old so that kind of <laughs> kind of adds into the mix but you get that it's hard it's tough you've got all these people yelling at you and they're powerful and they're they're backed up by this powerful ideological uh, machine behind them because they've emptied out the academy and stuffed them full of people who believe in what they do and they teach um, economics on that basis but I strongly believe that, you know, I mean, look at the student protests a few years ago. People said, oh, the Brits, they're not, you know, they're not hot-headed like the, the Greeks and the French, all these kind of patronising generalisations. But students came out in their tens of thousands and they came out and they surprised themselves by how much power they had. These are people patronised as the X Factor generation, the reality TV generation who don't care about politics. Well, those people showed they did care about politics and they were met with kettles and police batons and then from being patronised as apathetic, they were suddenly hoodlums and, and rioters uh, and so on. But they actually gave other people confidence and hope. When you've got trade unionists and working people coming out on strike and protesting, it's partly because students gave them a kick up the backside. So there is that tradition and I want students to think... And, and other young people, look at your futures. You know, even if you go a third, uh, uh, sorry, nearly a half of new university graduates are doing non-graduate jobs. Many of you, you go to LSE, and I don't want to disillusion you, but you're going to end up doing zero-hour contract jobs, 
You're going to end up getting text messages at 6am in the morning telling you if you're going to get any hours that day. You're not going to have pension rights. You're not going to have paid leave, even paid sick leave. You'll be told to be self-employed. You won't be burgeoning Alan Sugars. You'll be workers stripped of any basic rights. And you'll look at your degree and think, what the hell was all that about? I've indebted myself and I don't even get this at the end of it. I won't be able to afford a house that I can live in in London if I want to live here or in other parts of the country. What about my children? What about these services being slashed away that I depend on? All of us, whether you're working class or middle class, actually are going to face a very difficult and insecure future. So don't, if you're now, you've got a chance to organise and to think things through. Don't think that automatically you go to a university like this and you can just end up prospering at the top of society. Those guarantees are long gone. And I think that's why a lot of people in this room won't end up as the suited and booted multimillionaire CEOs of the future uh, telling me about out there, parties at uh, Stonewall the night before, but whilst they're engaged in mass tax avoidance. Uh, but, <laughs> but they'll actually be fighting for a better world, and we've got to build that coalition of people. It's the only way we're going to win. Okay. We've got time for just one last round of questions. I'm going to take two people and then I'm going to ask a question myself. Can I have the woman with the stripy shirt um, in the middle and then um, the gentleman with his hand up in the fourth row? Not the one... The guy in here. Can you... Yeah, you. Hello. So, first... um, Hi, uh, my name's Maria and I'm also from Sheffield. I think we've taken over here today. (laughs) Taken over the world. Um, I teach at City Lit College, which is just uh, round the corner. I'm also chair of the UCU branch there. And I spent the last few weeks uh, organising my members and working hard to try and get them to go on strike tomorrow. Uh, a couple of hours before I came to this lecture, we've got um, an email from National to say that that strike is now suspended uh, because it's, uh, the court has, rolled, has ruled it illegal um, after you know, the fact that all FE colleges were going to come out and strike nationally alongside with other public sector workers unions tomorrow. What technicality did they use? I, d- I don't know, I'm not sure. Something to do, it was an administrative thing, something to do with records or something. But uh, that goes back to what you were talking about earlier and about the establishment. I mean, certainly we've got you know, one of the most reactionary anti-trade union legislation in this country, that, uh, anywhere in the kind of so-called you know, developed world. Um, we're also dealing with judiciary that I know that you've not talked about tonight, but I think you've talked about it previously in terms of you know, how, who gets to be judges and who gets to be part of that uh, establishment. Um, and so it was simply a statement, but also a question, I guess, in that, yeah, to those people out there, people are organising it, we're doing it locally, we're trying to fight but also the establishment is so powerfully against us um, and, not, and also with the media, I mean sadly the media just vilifies trade union public sector workers, we're, you know, we're seen as you know, we're lazy, we shouldn't be coming out on strike people don't realise we lose pay every time we go out on strike these aren't decisions that union members take easily and lightly but it's something that we do because we, we believe that we need to, to lead on this fight someone who commutes to Holborn every day is I do, the amount of people that here complain oh the tube workers are on strike again and, and certainly people don't no longer seem to understand the relevance of trade unions, especially young people and having taught young people it saddens me that don't know this rich tradition that you talked about this evening so I guess one of my questions is to 
issue. How do we strengthen the trade union movement and make it relevant to young people today? Because as you said, they're the ones that are, going, are suffering the consequences and will suffer in the future the consequences of worsening conditions. Okay, and the uh, gentleman in, in the um, middle. Yeah, um, I'm Jamal and I'm an undergrad uh, from the school. And um, I've just sort of liked to raise an issue about that sort of um, juxtaposing dimension between practicality and genuine change. So uh, a few allusions you've made, such as the student movement or the parallel, uh, parallelism with UKIP voters between uh, and sort of other uh, left-wing thinkers. But um, I, I wouldn't go as far to say um, sort of like in Leninist terms like a um, sub-socialist class consciousness. But if people kind of... Um, you said that people don't think in terms of left and right and I myself would be uneasy to be branded purely ideological, but if people aren't aware of what they're doing, um, isn't it the case that, I don't know, say UKIP come and offer a deal sweetener, or if people aren't, um, or if they're focused on their own issues, say, um, in a couple of weeks' time, um, the sort of student movement, if in a sort of utopian world that problem gets dealt with, how do you deal with the fact that once that's over, they'll just all go home and that issue is achieved... So, um, and again, if it's, uh, to allude to an earlier point, if, it's, if that mindset um, sort of perceives and permeates society, then how do you stop us uh, or people who aren't as part of the establishment? It's sort of an ongoing theme of if they're thinking in that sort of almost selfish, hierarchical mindset, how do you overcome that when they get into such positions or their <laughs> cause isn't met if they're not aware of or uh, inspired by the right sort of motives. Great. Okay, and I'm just going to put in a question here, but I think feel free to constrain your answers because at, at 8 o'clock we oh, yeah. kind of come Goodbye, to yeah. book signing. Um, I mean, as, as you know, populism as a language has, has very effectively worked for Labour and the left through many periods of history, but we are in a period where it's working principally for the right, not just here with UKIP, but in many, many countries. Indeed, it's one of the phenomenon of our time. Why do you think it is that it's more effective for the right now than for the left? Okay, great questions. Well, firstly, about trade unions. Look, trade unions are demonised and vilified by those at the top in this society, and, and, and more so than in other countries, because trade unions in this country are treated as though they have no legitimate role in public life. And it's fascinating. Labour's links with the trade unions demonised, partly even by some of their own leaders sometimes, when that should be a badge of pride. The biggest democratic movement backed and bankrolled by supermarket workers and, 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 and cleaners and, and factory workers and call centre workers and lollipop ladies, pillars of any basic decent uh, society. And if anyone should be ashamed and on the defensive about their funding arrangements, should be a Conservative Party bankrolled by hedge funds and bankers and legal loan sharks. The fact they're not shows who has power and who doesn't. Uh, but we've got to be more confident about it. I mean, you say that, you know, that we have, Tony Blair boasted the most stringent anti-trade union laws in the Western world. Um, and, you know, you come up, that point about technicality, when the British Airways cabin workers went on strike a few years ago, their strike was shut down on a technicality by a judge, who it later turned out had a ticket during Christmas when the, they were supposed to go on strike. <laughs> And it was shut down on this basis. It was an 80% turnout. About 85% of people voted for the strike. But there were nine spoiled ballots. 
And because they had failed to text to all their members the nine spoiled ballots and just mentioned the other results, that was deemed to have broken anti-trade union legislation and the whole strike was shut down by the court. And that just shows how stringent our anti-trade union laws are. They're there to stop people going on strike. What that does, though, 2004 onwards, wages started falling in this country. And because they started falling, demand was taken out of the economy. People had to rely on cheap credit instead to keep up their living standards. And we spent billions and billions of pounds more money on in-work benefits to subsidise wages. Weak trade unions, we all suffer as a consequence. It costs more more money because we have to subsidise these wages. People are left with insecure work that drags down other people's wages and it's bad for the economy as well. So we've got to be more determined about that, making that case about the legitimacy of the unions. Uh, but we've also got to take on those anti-trade union laws which restrict them and trade unions need to change the way they organise, organise in the community as well as the workplace because work is so transient in a way it wasn't before. Uh, Jamal, that point about practicality. Well look, you know, uh, when people fight a battle they just go home after they've won. Well, for me, the key point is when you get victories, that inspires other people. You know, I talk about UK and Court. UK and Court, they occupied, they, some of them, including my friends, got arrested for taking part in those occupations, but they forced tax avoidance on the agenda. And that, you know, a UK and Court activist said to me last week, they asked me, oh, does that mean we lost because the Tories are going on about tax avoidance? No, the opposite. The fact you forced even Conservative politicians to talk about tax avoidance shows you've made a huge victory. And that should embolden other people to organise. You know, electricians in 2012 went on strike against Balfour Beatty, one of the great multinational companies on the face of the earth. And they didn't just go on strike, they took part in occupations and they won. And that should embolden other working people to go out and strike and think, oh, I'm not just going to get screwed over and allow my wages to be cut. Uh, I'm actually going to be able to do something about it. I can organise. And the point is to stop seeing ourselves in isolation. You know, students aren't just being attacked on their own with a trebling of tuition fees or a scrapping of EMA or being deprived of secure work in the future. Young people are being, uh, across the country, are being deprived of secure work, languishing in unemployment, scarring them for the rest of their life. Elderly people are choosing between heating their homes and feeding themselves. Low-paid supermarket workers in Newcastle and Manchester and Glasgow are having their in-work benefits cut even as their wages fall. Disabled people are having their benefits cut and so on. To coin a phrase, we're all in this together and we've got to stop seeing ourselves in isolation. We've got to start linking up with each other and seeing ourselves as part of uh, one common cause. And then when you get one victory, everybody else can trumpet that and say, yes, they won, so we, we can as well. And that point about lectures, when they go on strike, even though they've been stopped tomorrow, when your lecturers go on strike, go out there and support them. Stand on the picket lines with you, with them. Because they're not just striking for themselves, they're striking for you as well. They're striking for the future of education in this country. It should be run on the basis of people's needs, not run as a commodity. So we've all got to start linking up with each other far more and seeing ourselves as all in it together. And that final point about populism, well it comes back to what I said before. It comes down uh, to the failure of the left because of all the defeats it suffered to present a coherent alternative that resonates with people. But I dispute the analysis slightly because as I said in Greece and in Spain that hasn't been the case. There you have thriving populist left-wing parties. Podemos in Spain which means we can as I say what they've done is they don't speak often. They, you know, I did this big meeting with them in London, packed out with Spaniards from London and the point is they, they avoid using the same traditional 
traditional language often of the left, and they've been criticised for more traditional elements in Spain as a result. But they tried to appeal people on an issue-by-issue basis, and that's why they're doing well. We've got to learn from those examples. So, yeah, you've got the National Front in France. Here you've got UKIP. But in Spain and Greece, it's been very, very different. And we should learn from those examples, those of us who want a different sort of movement, learn how to communicate with people in a way that they understand, break down, not, don't use the old rhetoric, which often just alienates people, makes them glaze over, switch off, here we go again, that sort of thing. Appeal to people. We know the polls show, the opinion polls show, that things have shifted. And that's finally just where I want to end up, because, you know, the point of this isn't just to be a kind of, you know, we all go home now, pat ourselves on the back, wasn't that interesting? Well, I hope it was anyway. It's a bit presumptuous, isn't it? Um, the point is... Is, is, is not just to, you know, to read, to coin a phrase, but to organise. And not just to talk, but to organise. If you believe that this society is unjust, if you believe it is unjust that wealth and power is concentrated in the hands of so few, whilst working people are suffering the longest fall in living standards since Benjamin Disraeli was Prime Minister in the 1870s, if you don't accept you know, the mass tax avoidance of those at the top, bankers plunging into an economic disaster with no consequence, if this is not the society you want to live in, or you don't want your children in the future to have to live in, then do something about it. And our history shows that if you do that, if you do organise, if you do link up with other people, if you use your joint collective strength, then you're not just getting it off your chest. You're not just giving it a go and say, well, at least we tried. You can actually win. They're not as powerful as they look. And with enough determination, with enough courage, and with enough people getting out there and getting organised, we can change society and we can build a different sort of society. So that's my plea. Don't just go home at the end of this. Go home and think, maybe have a drink first, but after that, after the drink, think about what you can do to fight for a different sort of society. And if all of us in the room do that, then that is a big result, and we can actually do something to change society. So that's my plea. Thanks. Thanks.